Okay, wonderful. Hooray. <laughs> so we're here, all of us at the Garden Cinema, after a screening of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. And we have the wonderful Dr. Lucy Bolton, who's here to share her expertise and insights um, about the film <laughs> and, its, uh, and its actresses. And uh, thank you, everyone, for joining in. So first of all, Lucy, thanks again. Your starting point for the discussion was very much about this portrayal of crazy old women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, by the main actresses. Can you tell us a bit more about about that and what makes this film stand out in that specific portrayal? So I do quite a lot of events and things like introductions or talks about films and whenever I do anything like that I nearly I always watch the film again. And this time I deliberately chose not to mm -hmm. because I thought it's such a great setup to be able to just introduce it lightly and then see it. And I probably haven't seen it for about 10, 10 years, probably. And I, I used to watch it a lot because I used to teach it every year on my stardom module. I used to teach Joan Crawford. And um, so I left it because I wanted to um, be reminded and to see it anew. And I really, really did. I mean, there was so much that I noticed with this view, having just read that book on crazy old ladies. And with the view, you know, there's always a specific, whenever you come to see a film, there's always, you always bring a set of glasses with you. And this one, I was thinking about Hollywood on Hollywood, because that's mm -hmm. part of that season here. I just thought, my goodness, it's, it's so important as a marker of um, believable, Hollywood careers. That sounds crazy because it's like grand, you know, like mad, um, sort of hysterical plot. But, and the muse is quite hysterical. But here we have a child star, so fated, so adored, made, a, made of a doll, so adored by her father. And those very rarely last and go through into you know, adulthood or, and a long-standing career. And then you have the jealous sister. You know, we know all these family feuds to Haviland and Fontaine, the Barrymore clan. Um, mm. You know, the, there's, a, there's a lot of families in Hollywood who were kind of split and jealous, jealousy of each other. And then you have the fact that these two women, Crawford and Davis, had incredibly long careers, unprecedented, um, really nobody like them interestingly and of course they had peaks and troughs for various reasons and that's something we can talk about if you want to but really fascinating how um a similar age it's hard to be precise about the age difference because joan crawford was never entirely honest about the year she was born which i think is fantastic Probably there were no births exactly she says there were no birth certificates in those days i never had one yeah brilliant so um, she said she was two years older than Davis, but Betty Davis said she was at least five years older than her. Um, so Crawford made the transition from silent movies to sound, and of course did that really beautifully and more successfully than many because she had an amazing voice, speaking voice, mellifluous, deep, so resonant. I mean, in the clips within the film, you can hear that her voice is so deep and velvety, it's beautiful. Betty Davis came along after that um, made her, she started in the theatre in New York, in Broadway, made the transition to movies as an actress. And of course, when she arrived 
in the sort of mid-30s, early-ish mid-30s, 33, 33, um, she was by no means what the starlets all looked like. And famously, she was really disappointed when she and her mum arrived at the station in Hollywood because there was nobody there to meet her. She thought she was going to be met. And in fact, there had been somebody there to meet her, but he'd gone because he said there was no one there who looked like an actress. Ouch. And, yeah, ouch. And her first few tests and films and appearances, all anyone could say, all the directors said was, no sex appeal, no glamour, awful, what are we going to do with her? She's got nothing. And so they were basically going to let her go. Um, and she was heading, going to head back to the theatre. And then George Arliss, this British actor, said, well, I think she's got something, and cast her in a film in which she made an impact. And on the back of that, she got her first amazing role, which is in Of Human Bondage, where she is electrifying. Please see it. I think it's on, it's on loads of um, platforms now. It's on Amazon Prime. It's on YouTube, I think, Of Human Bondage. She, and it sets the pattern for how she um, conducts her performances in her career. In Of Human Bondage, she's supposed to, she dies of consumption and the makeup artist had put on a little bit of dark shadow under her eyes and that is like, this is ridiculous, I'm doing my own makeup. And she went out and like sort of wrecked her hair, put all coal on her face. And when, you op when they open the door on her at the end of the film and she is dying of consumption, sure enough, she looks terrible. <laughs> and the director let her go with it because he said this woman really means business and that marked the start of her as we see really clearly in the film tonight totally putting her face and body and looks on the line all the time she didn't care about that it was all about being pushing yourself as an actor being as authentic as you can um being as unselfconscious as you can it was all about the role all about the part that's one of the things she, she didn't like about Crawford. Crawford, going back, had started her life as a dancer. She'd wanted to be a professional dancer, but she'd had an ankle injury, she'd had surgery, but she was still a great dancer. And um, I just remember there's a lovely anecdote. I did some work on Carol Lombard um, a, a, a while ago, and Carol Lombard, around the same time, this kind of like early 30s, was a really great dancer and used to go to the Coconut Grove every week and win the Charleston competition every Friday night. And then this pretender from the MGM starlet lot started coming over and sometimes beating Carol Lombard at the Charleston and winning the trophy and that was Joan Crawford. So she got to Hollywood basically on her looks and her dancing and her ability, her sort of magnetism and she formed her own star persona by getting out and being seen, dancing everywhere, being at all the hot spots, getting noticed and she was incredibly beautiful and she believed that if you're a movie star and people pay money to see you, you owe the public um, to always look and act like a movie star. She was the first star to get like thousands of fan letters a week. She spent hours signing them all individually. She really cared about her fans. She really cared about how she looked. She did a lot of athletics and swimming. So. Davis always saw her as a movie star and in fact Crawford saw herself as a, as a movie star and, and valued that but also was a damn fine actress I mean she won an Oscar for goodness sake for Mildred Pierce mm -hmm. and whereas Davis always saw herself 
as a proper actress, not a movie star. And and yet, of course, we know that one of the reasons why that was was because you know, the studios would repeatedly say she didn't have the raw material to be a movie star because she wasn't sexy enough, beautiful enough, a fashion plate, this, that and the other. So that dynamic between the two of them, this is the only film they're in together. Yeah. But... Um, when, this isn't in a particularly good way. When Joan Crawford was married to her second husband, Francois Tain, Betty Davis was in a film with him and made a play at him, tried to get him away from Joan Crawford. And Joan Crawford was quoted as saying, Francois always saw Betty as a great actress, but never as a woman. So this kind of rivalry between their ability and sexuality was set up very early. So there is evidence of that. It's not just been stoked by... No, no, no. no. And then Joan was at MGM for many years until her career started to dwindle there. I mean, in the, in the 30s, she was one of the stars called Box Office Poison, um, that, which was a, a letter written to a th- like Movies International, Film International, about a certain bunch of stars who were deemed to be more expensive than they were bringing in the money. And this included, I mean, it's ridiculous when you think about it now, it was people like Fred Astaire, Dietrich, he- Catherine Hepburn, um, and Crawford was one of those. So basically MGM let her go because she wasn't making the money anymore. And she got a, a hot new agent, Lou Wasserman, who negotiated her a deal with Warners, which was Betty Davis's studio. So she arrived at Warners, Betty Davis's same studio, and she really wanted the role of Mildred Pierce, but Betty da- the directors wanted Betty Davis. But Betty Davis didn't want it. She was she gave up a load of amazing roles. Betty Davis. She'd go, no, 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 it's not for me. Crawford got that role of Mildred Pierce, won an Oscar, rejuvenated her career. Over the next few years, so that that period between late thirties and late forties was was kind of brilliant for both of them. Um, Crawford made Johnny Guitar. And she went back to MGM for that, actually. Johnny Guitar and Torch Song, which is awful. But she'd started to look, and this Kathy has done a lot of work on the makeup and how her look kind of ossified over the years. All her Crawford's face, because her, you know, her face has always been so central as it is in this film, the planes of her face, her features, eyes, eyebrows, lips, got kind of starker and starker and bigger and bigger. It almost looks like a like a pantomime mask in some ways. The colours are so strong and the everything's so big. So it's almost like she became ready to make a film like this. Sort of, they've aged in a way that their star persona kind of makes this work and they look like what they are, ageing stars. And of course that works just perfectly for this film. I think also what's really interesting about these two, they don't always make, they definitely don't always make glamour girl movies, but they also make, they made, they were ruling queens of the women's picture decades of the 30s, where the films were all about strong women, stories about, they were women's stories for women going to the pictures, 30s and 40s. When you get to the 50s, and they're a bit older, the women look like Marilyn Monroe, Elizabeth Taylor, Ava Gardner, they're sex pots, post-war. Those roles were, were far more about sexy women than strong women. This is big, like generalisations, but it is a, a sweep. So by the time they get to the 60s, 
there aren't really many roles for them. A lot of the male stars, people like Robert Taylor, had, had transitioned to television. And indeed, Betty and Joan both tried their hands at, at some television appearances. But th they needed this film. Mm. In fact, yeah. only the year before this film, Betty Davis had put an ad, which is quite funny to see um, <laughs> her putting the had put an ad in, a, in, a in something like Screen International or something, saying... Um, established screen professional of 40 years, needs jobs, is reliable, is so-and-so, kind of did it as a joke, but it has, be, has been successful, these kind of things. And it was deemed to be like not very sensible, like not showing much pride, but she was making a point with it. You know, I've, I'm Betty Davis and I can't get a job. It's interesting that they show their old... Yeah. The old films yeah. on the television, so there's that kind of link, isn't there? Mm. I think it's really wonderful, and I think that what's interesting there is that you can see some of the tensions in these stereotypes about them, because yes, Crawford looks and sounds amazing and is incredibly beautiful, incredibly sexy. Betty Davis is great. But the studio boss is sitting there, you know, she doesn't look like what they want her to look like. She doesn't move like they want her to move. Her figure isn't right for them. Her, her features aren't right. Even though, as Betty Davis fans, which I'm sure we probably all are in this room, when we look at her, we think, she looks great! <laughs> but those scenes are supposed to convey, see, she's nothing compared to Blanche. But I think that's actually really symptomatic of the... The genre, the the psycho biddy hag exploitation genre, it's like Norma Desmond. Um, and in fact, I saw an episode of Columbo the other day where it had <laughs> Janet Lee doing the same thing as an aging movie star watching clips, watching her movies as a young woman. Every night she'd sit there with her glass of champagne, watching her replaying her old movies. I guess it's meant to be. It's sort of like indicative of the old woman. And yeah, how it's a she's trope, just meant to yeah. feel sad, mm -mm. like uh, Miss Havisham. Yes, yes. Yeah. nostalgia. Yeah, yes. best days are behind her. Yes, yeah. and that there's nothing. There's nothing now to watch, and there's nothing from the last five years or ten years, but it has to be like 40 years ago for, it, for her to have been a time when she looked beautiful. So there is evidence of the two of them clashing and being kind of rivals on and off, but the feud was definitely ramped up for publicity for this film, All, including things that supposedly happened during the production of the film that um, oh, there are all these legends, you've probably heard them, but that like um, uh, Betty Davis was constantly critical of Joan Crawford's sort of lightness, the fact that she wasn't a proper actress, that she was more worried about people liking her and how she looked, and that Crawford had planned to, to act the whole film in a series of very sexy, beautiful negligees. <laughs> and they were like, no, she hasn't been out for years and she can't go shopping and Blanche, Jane is dressing her, so she won't be looking glam. And that, jo and that on the set, Joan Crawford, um, and I was looking really closely tonight, I mean, I think it's nonsense, but there's a story that she put on weighted belts when Betty J. Davis had to move her around. <laughs> so, and Betty Davis put her back out. Um, 
And there's also the stuff that um, Betty Davis used to say, because Betty Davis had quite large chest and Joan Crawford was quite flat chested. And so she was always on uh, like telling the press that Joan Crawford wore falsies or needed to wear falsies. <laughs> and at the end she says, oh, I fell on top of her to pick her up. And oh, it was like being hit by two footballs and things like this. So those things were definitely reported and said at, at the time. The fact of those stories on set like built up the idea of the feud and continued it afterwards, as did what happened around the Oscars. Do you know about this? This no, is pretty this is after the film. Yeah, this is pretty fantastic. And I mean, I take my hat. Yeah. My money would always have been mm. on Joan Crawford mm. to win any contest, basically. But so Betty Davis was nominated for an Oscar for Baby Jane, quite rightly, I think. Mm. And she pretty much thought she was going to win. Crawford was not, and Crawford feared clearly that Davis was going to win. So what Crawford did, and this is in the Feud series that Ryan Murphy made, and I didn't believe it. I thought, this, gosh, that can't have been right. But I looked it up. It's, it's true. true. <laughs> Joan Crawford went round to all the other nominees, like four, of the, four or five of them, and said, if you can't make it on the night, don't worry. I volunteer my services to collect your Oscar for you. I will, happil- <laughs> I will happily do it. And when she got, she went to Broadway, to, went to New York to see Anne Bancroft, who was in a play there, who definitely couldn't make it to the Oscars. And so Anne Bancroft fell for it and said, do you know what, that would be amazing. I mean, I'm not going to win, but thank you. So on the night of the Oscars, when Anne Bancroft was announced as the winner, Joan Crawford, head to toe in glitter and sequins, went up, received the Oscar and gave an acceptance speech on behalf of Anne Bancroft, with Betty Davis sitting in the audience thinking, what's just (laughs) happened? (laughs) What has just happened? So, yes, it, it, you know, there's there's meat on those bones. I really understood the power of the image. Oh, oh yeah, really. She See, is. that was all about. Yeah. yeah, I want a picture of me with my Oscar. Yeah. But of course, when she'd won for Mildred Pierce, she'd stayed home, saying she had pneumonia, and received the Oscar in bed in her nightdress. So the pictures all over the press were of her going <laughs> in in her in her nightie in bed. I mean, so yeah, she really did. That's really important. Following the success of this film. As I said in the introduction, like the new genre was born, and a few years later they tried to, like the same team, Robert Aldrich and um, uh, Betty Davis, tried to recreate it with Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. And this started filming, it was a same kind of like gothic mansion, parts reversed where um, Joan Crawford was going to play the more sort of conniving sister. I think they're cousins actually in Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, I think. But, Anyway, the shoot started and Betty Davis had basically aligned herself very closely with the director, with Bob Aldridge, and really succeeded in making Crawford feel very paranoid that she was being badly treated or not getting enough shots, not getting enough close-ups, all this kind of stuff. Crawford basically absented herself repeatedly by going to hospital saying she was ill. And it led to Crawford getting the sack, basically, from that film and being replaced by Livia de Havilland who is an interesting third cog in this mm. dynamic between them. She crops up often in their relationship. So I, I think it was an incredibly unhappy shoot for Crawford, and I'm not sure how sad she'd have been to, to not be on that anymore. But Davis made that happen. So, um, 
Yeah, and as the she Davis took a great amount of joy out of the fact that um, Crawford based a lot of her kind of queenliness on the fact mm. that she was married to Mr. Pepsi Cola, and would come up on sets with coolers full of Pepsi boxes, boxes of Pepsi and things like that, and <laughs> acted as if she was like Princess Margaret or something <laughs> when it because her husband was the executive of Pepsi Cola, so she, she treated it like a like she would like mm. you know like it was a kind of almost royal role, so. The the difference between the two of them, the kind of um, serene queenliness mm-hmm. and the kind of out-and-out scrappy actorliness of Bessie Davis, there's truth in that. And that's why this film resonates so much. Um, I mean, I'd read more about the film than, you know, um, than I'd remembered of having seen it as a child. That's yeah. the last time I'd seen it. Um, and in fact... I'd misremembered it, so when the accident happens, I'm thinking, oh, I thought it was the other way around. Uh, remembered it. <laughs> okay, I understand why. It's um, a good job you were sitting on your own. You didn't have someone to say next to them. I was sure it was. I was very, very young. I must have been eight or nine, and it was on TV, mm. and, and I ended up watching it. For some reason, I've never gone back. Um, and I'm curious to see if, if any of you... For any of you, this was the first time you've watched it. Yeah, first yeah. time for me. Yeah. <gasps> what are your thoughts, I'm reactions? Yeah. I think well, the cruelty was the quite cruelty. shocking. I mean, I, I knew of the film, mm. of the relationship, but yeah, it's it's um, pretty out there, isn't it, in terms of the the meanness. Mm. It's, uh, and, and I, from, I guess. You know the um, sort of background mm. level of of understanding of this film and the way it's part of you know what we know subconsciously. I was expecting it more to be a two-way thing, but it's very much a one-way. Well, except when you get mm. to the end. And yeah, you see, I thought that as well. The reason I thought that was because the only example, or well, the only, the only way this film lived in my memory was through the French and Saunders pastiche which I've seen much later where yeah. they're both awful yeah. and yeah. for some reason yes. I just remembered this um, rather than it being one directional yeah. um, I'm also interested in, in the ways in which the film the controversies that it generated at the time and then over the years if they've changed, for example, now, would there be maybe a more feminist reading of the film? I mean, um, I think, obviously, it's very yeah. different times. Yeah. And I think that, having said that, one of the massive pleasures of it this evening for me was seeing these two amazing actresses dominate the whole screen for two and a half hours. The only men in it are kind of useless policemen. I mean, useless <laughs> yeah. policemen. Yeah. Yeah. Um a very difficult um, Edwin um, Victor Bueno character whose relationship with his mother and the mother herself who's another crazy old lady who, exactly. yes, yes well exactly and has there ever been more brilliant casting of a mother and son I was looking at their faces thinking this is inspired so there's that kind of dynamic going on there which is a, a whole other discussion even but um so at the time, I think, you know, when the film was first discussed, I think it was Jack Warner who said, you know, no one's going to pay money to see these washed up old broads. 
in their 50s. Mm-hmm. I was thinking now, a, a film that I recorded the other night on television was called The Book Club or something, or The Book Society, mm-hmm. that had... The Book Club. The Book Club. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. But <laughs> is it? Great. You're going to have a really good time. Thank you. <laughs> I believe every word you, you say, George. Uh, shades of Grey yeah. would be just unquestionably um, acclaimed by the, all of these women. Got it. In the book. <laughs> so it's got yeah, Jane Fonda, um, <laughs> Diane Keaton, and um, and they're all like I think probably in their s- at least sixties. And I just thought this is so rare, so rare. Um, so, in terms of reception, mm. I wonder if um, I was thinking back to Charlie's Angels, not the first one. The second one, Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, <laughs> with Demi Moore. Yeah. Yeah. Now, all the pre-publicity about that film was how extraordinary it was that Demi Moore looked so good in a bikini. And I think she was 40, I think, possibly. And she must have had surgery. And all the beauty magazines had pages and pages and pictures and pictures of her in her bikini and how she looked, how much plastic surgery was there. So I think, as film lovers, cinephiles, whatever, it's film thinkers, we can watch this here and now and think and appreciate the actresses, appreciate Davison Crawford and how amazing it is. I wonder just how different it would be if it was if it was on now. How that would be discussed. I remember when Michelle Pfeiffer mm. sort of re emerged after the lost decade of the forties, but women in Hollywood between kind of thirty eight and 48 or 50 seemed to disappear mm. she re-emerged as a hag in that stardust thing where she's actually a witch of the ages and um i haven't seen the film so i can't i don't know but but mm. but she, they were, she was trying to defy aging and yes at one point you saw a clip of her suddenly wizen to what she really did look like mm. and all the press was about how amazing does Michelle Pfeiffer, look, close-ups on her face. Has she had surgery? Has she had this and other? How does she look? And I just, so I I wonder how the reception would be now. We'd like to think, oh goodness, they were washed up by then. Well, mm. what kind of roles are women like that playing in Hollywood Jennifer now? Jennifer Lopez in Hustlers. Yeah, yeah. Right. there we go. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And, then and then doing the Super Bowl. How yeah. wonderful she looks. Yes. Yeah. But that yeah. will be the focus. Yeah, yeah. that's the focus. On the looks. Age defying. Yeah. Age yeah. defying. Yeah. Betty Davis is completely consistent with her being this um, overdramatic, you know. Um, but to think that she's younger than Crawford is, is amazing. To think that she's so prepared to wear that kind of makeup and put in that mm. kind of performance the way she walks the like shuffling. the shuffling oh, around the house the, the body yeah. all yeah. her you yeah. know she goes all in the for shuff- that role yeah. doesn't yeah. she yeah, yeah. yeah. she looks more like like a patient on a ward yeah. than and so yeah i think it's she said that she um looked at older women who wore lots of makeup and so she decided she wasn't going to take the makeup off mm. and she left it on every night and just kind of oh right oh was that yeah which that's I, where you get I, that cake down yeah look. and that yeah. little yeah. smudged heart mm. that is in yes. various yes. stages of yeah. 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 yeah I was reading about the so costumes well. today as well and about how mm. she wanted her costumes to look like they were sweat stained there is a delicious 
that element of competition between the two, Jane and Blanche, I think adds it a real adds a real edge to it, which um, which makes the end so spicy, you know, whether it's true or not. Oh yeah, who was saying that? We were is saying, she lying to is her? She lying? Is there? Yeah. A, is she relieving yeah. her of the burden of having of because she's on yeah. her deathbed? Oh, I thought it'd be more sinister that she's taking away that power that she has, thinking she's committed that crime. Mm. In some ways, I found that I got confused in the middle because she says early on, "No, don't worry, I'll never forget through gritted teeth." Mm. But then mm. she is so nice to her, mm. and then I was mm. like, kind of, but hang on a second. And it's only when you get to the very end, mm. and then she, uh, you know, has that scene on the beach mm. and says, yeah, you know, well, you know, long, it wasn't you. Thread, isn't and it? then you kind of that suddenly it made sense. But mm. but for me, in in the middle, there was a bit where I was like, hang on, there's something not right yeah. here, and I didn't have mm. the sense to project and and figure out where it was going to go to. But isn't that yeah? Isn't that also part of the whole sisters thing when she says you forget we're sisters, we know each other very well? I think that's one of, for me who doesn't have a sister, that's one of the most sinister thi- things about it is that sisters have this bond. I don't know anyone who's got a sister might tell me, but <laughs> this bond where they put up with an awful lot on yeah. the understanding that that bond is eternal and that you're not going to break up like friends do. Presumably, they lived together for a very long time. Forever, yeah, yeah, yeah. This There's no talk of husbands, is there? Or no, no, but Jane's well, obviously become, you know, uh, what, disturbed. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot. Recently. Exactly. There's a lot of. I, I'm, I, I, I'm trying to find a word of which is isn't plot holes, <laughs> but a lot of questions that it raises yes. is. Why, yes, why all this animosity now? What's been happening since, since the car accident? I her rodents. Yes. Well, selling the house clearly isn't helping, is it? I think things yeah. have gone downhill yeah, over right. the last four yeah. weeks. The intertitle of amazingly temporally ambiguous yesterday. Yeah, which just sort of really compresses or does something strange to the idea of like what happened in between yeah. Mm. yeah. Today, when and then yeah. when's today and I think that there's something it's not as kind of ossified or whatever as Norma Desmond's mansion or Miss Havisham but the bars on all the windows and the, the, the I mean it does look like a very LA house mm. but at the same time it's dead isn't it it's a really a dead house yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah it looks so it's shut Adam's up. Adam's family. Yeah, it? really. <laughs> it's not a mansion. No. And now it's all playing out under the same roof. So Blanche tries. One of the things that I find most sinister about it, actually, is that Blanche tries all the tricks in the book, but none of them work. Jane's always onto her. She's mm. always knows. She always stops her. She always knows. And that's quite, um, obviously that's very, it, um, it really makes Blanche very vulnerable. But also all the helpers are, use, uh, are useless as well, ultimately. Well, except Elvira, she was great. She, she was, was a really great. strong character. Mm. Yes, and yes. brave. Um, yep. And brave. left that. No. no, I know. And but time is against there. everyone. It yes. took her a very long time <laughs> to yes. get that nail out. <laughs> <laughs> out of the I know yeah, the car. Yeah, yeah. So traffic isn't like it is today. Exactly. <laughs> so but I did think that it was typical of of the race 
power relations of the time that she was the one who was going to be murdered yes. and disposed mm. of. Yes, yeah, yeah. And um, that was very, very chilling. Yeah. Also, what I found absolutely horrible was uh, the way that after uh, she'd kicked yes. um, Blanche on the floor, uh, that she just dragged her like yeah. a piece well, of one like arm. sack. Yeah. 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 yeah, And also the same disdain oh, that yeah. she showed to Elvira. Yeah. It was just awful. I mean, that's the indication isn't it that she's not just disturbed that she's truly psychotic mm -hmm. that um uh that even when she chooses to kind of untie blanche it's only um for a second when she tries to sort of entreat her to help her but mm. then ties her up again as soon as mm. um there's someone at the door so she's always canny and always clever but clearly and i suppose that's it that she was a drinker she was drunk the night of the accident she was a drinker because her career had gone wrong. She couldn't be a success. But um, the drinking, the guilt over the accident is what's tied them together over the ensuing 40 years. That's why she's given up her life to care for her, because she believes yeah. she caused it. Well, that's the thing. A lot of things make sense mm. once you know the ending. Mm. Um, otherwise, it does feel like is, did this dysfunctional relationship just play out over a few weeks mm. and it's been okay since, up until mm. then? Mm. There's some amazing camera angles. <coughs> yeah, yeah. Um, mm. When um, uh, when Blanche is is uh, kettled almost mm. in the house, where she's going around circles and circles mm. in the yeah. wheelchair, and it, it's, it's a shot from above, and very rare to see that in, yeah. in that time. And also the zoom on the telephone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and yeah. Bearing in mind, this is '62. It's two years after Psycho. Oh, which yeah. had been oh, a massive it? success. Oh, it's very influenced by Psycho. Oh, right. A lot of the angles, a lot of the shots, yeah. a lot of the crazy old ladies, yeah. a lot of that is very influenced. Oh. And Hitchcock, of course, really foregrounds objects. Objects have a great True. amount of meaning. Telephones, yeah. birds, yes. stuff yes. things. Yeah, so much of it is shot like yeah. a horror yeah. thriller yeah. film, isn't it? So mm. it was, that's the influence oh, really? there. Yeah. I, yeah. In fact, I would say that I think Ald Robert Aldrich was directly responding to Hitchcock, mm. to Psycho, looking for a project. This kind of low-grade, re almost realistic-looking type horror was new. Um, and, and he called the neighbour Mrs. Bates. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 There we go. Yeah. 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 And well, she well is the spitting image of Janet <laughs> Leigh. <laughs> yes. I kept thinking that, my goodness. But she's That's like, true. oh, I just thought, oh, like that. she's the image of Janet Leigh. Yeah. True. So it's that, it's really direct. Mm. The DP is, I, I've probably got this wrong, Otto Haller. Um, you, you'll correct uh, that in post. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ernest Haller, who, yes. I mean, he had jobs. He shot Maltese Falcon, yeah. Mildred Pierce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And mm -hmm. Golden Wind as well. So, oh, and it was probably his last, one of his last sort of major right. successes. Amazing. Yeah, so it, and I think there was some, I mean, it was, you know, a huge critical and commercial success at the time but there was some sniffiness about it I think some snobbiness about some of the direction, some of the editing some of the, it was seen as a bit cheap in places, I don't mean cheap looking I mean like a bit schlocky maybe, a bit you know, sort of easy horror wins mm. um, but that's all part of it wasn't it, I mean you can't look at Baby Jane and think this is a 
totally, you know, um, takes itself too seriously. It's not a production that takes itself yeah. too mm. seriously at all. Um, yeah, so I think that that's... But it's it, it's very important, actually, to, to think about when it's happening, just after Psychops. And, well, another really interesting echo there is that Crawford really hated the stars, uh, the, the modern stars, the younger stars, as, as her career progressed. Like she hated Marilyn Monroe. She thought she was really tarty and cheap-looking. She hated how she dressed. Um, she said the only actress who had what it takes to be a real star in the old-fashioned mould, Faye Dunaway. Yeah. And, of course, Faye Dunaway plays Joan Crawford in Mommy Dearest, the book based on Crawford's yeah. daughter's memoir. Yeah. And in a way, it didn't do Dunaway's career much good, I don't think. She's forever associated with that. But there's a physical resemblance between the two, definitely, which obviously works brilliantly in Mommy Dearest. But the, it's interesting that Crawford would say that, mm. because Dunaway obviously is very much part of the new Hollywood, comes in Bonnie and Clyde and everything Chinatown. Whereas better, and also I think it's something that's really nice to think about and really interesting is that Joan Crawford because her public image and how she looked meant so much to her when she saw pictures of herself she's gone to an event with her best mate Rosalind Russell who who she was in The Women With which was the same year as Gone With The Women 39 so they've been friends for a long time this was 73, 74 she saw pictures of her, them coming out of the party the next morning in the press and she was so appalled by how she looked. She was like, I don't look like that, do I? That's it. The public cannot see Joan Crawford anymore. And she basically stopped having a public life because she didn't want people to see how she looked. Betty Davis, think of her in Lindsay Anderson's The Wales of August. She's played, she's almost blind, she's dying of cancer. She's still acting mm. her socks off. Um, the defiance and smoking yes. <laughs> you know the defiance and the need to perform the the drive not need the drive to act um, no matter I mean she does she's almost unrecognisable in the Wales of August so there's a real I think that's kind of a wonderful reflection on them from this film that um Davis was prepared to go on and on and on and give and give and give and give and perform, and perform whereas Crawford said that's it so yeah they feuded but they Crawford made this film happen she yeah. said I want Betty Davis for Jane she, yeah. was, she was kind of canny wasn't she? yeah very yeah. canny yeah. 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 she said we both need this yeah. and she was right yeah. Time. Great note to end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining into this discussion. Yeah, Have a lovely evening. Thank yeah. you. Thanks, okay. <laughs>